Word, I'm gonna say the word. In the beginning was the word. 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 Was the word. From the studios of KJZZ in Phoenix, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about literature. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Coming up on this episode of Word, we catch up with a children's author whose middle grade fantasy novel was a National Book Award finalist this year. What I hope people can take from this is that we do actually have to ask ourselves, what is it that I owe to my neighbor? Plus, a former reporter and historical fiction writer brings us a World War II story about a real-life reporter with an Arizona connection who turned into a mouthpiece for fascism. They wanted to write a book that showed the value of journalism specifically to democracy. But first, Betsy Coffeen has a new young kid's book titled Kate and the Garden Bandits. It was illustrated by Ginger Seehafer. The book is about a garden-tending butterfly and her charismatic bug besties who learn valuable lessons about the interconnectedness of Mother Nature. But what was the catalyst for the book? I'm a mother of three children, and I had done a lot of work the last two decades with an organization called Child Help, which is a large non-for-profit that advocates for children of abuse and neglect. And just after my experiencing with child help and raising my own children, I really think it's imperative that we teach children to believe in themselves and believe in their dreams. And I think so often, you know, children start out in school very curious, excited to learn, and it just kind of dissipates. And I feel like if we can encourage children as they age to keep up their wonderful imaginations, I think the world would benefit from encouraging imagination and creativity. And I also am very driven to inspire empathy for the younger generation, because I think empathy is a key to having more peace in our world today. I want to pick up on that in a sec. The book is called Kate and the Garden Bandits, which is uh, new and out, and it's very imaginative, as you alluded to, the importance of that. It centers on Kate, the title character, who is a butterfly, and she's awakened one morning to a buzzing sound and the sight of flowers missing their petals. That's where her adventure begins. Can you tell us a little bit more about the adventure? She's been in a daydream and she wakes up and she sees that there's petals missing from her garden. And she begins to wonder where they're going. So she walks towards the uh, opening of a maple tree and she finds out that there's a large bumblebee that has been taking her petals from her magic garden. And what she finds out is that this large bumblebee is not a thief at all, but he's a kind-hearted creature who is just taking petals to feed his family as they are using the nectar from the flowers to feed their baby bumblebees. At its heart, this book is about the interconnectedness of our world and, and empathy building, as you said. What do you think is missing maybe from curricula at an early age that doesn't focus on empathy building? Are are we too concerned with maybe getting children into planning out their entire next 18 years at yes. the start of kindergarten? I think so. I, I really think I just 
recently went back and I got my master's of science in psychology at Arizona State University. And my entire thesis was on developing a mindfulness curriculum for the schools and to have it be taught just like you would teach reading and math, just part of the core curriculum. Because I think we spend so much time trying to teach, you know, critical thinking skills. But what about befriending your mind and being empathetic, kind person towards yourself and towards others? Because according to the National Institute of Health, they do say we're in a mental health crisis, and it's predominantly affecting young adolescent women. So I do think it's very important. Well, and certainly the COVID pandemic did not help when so many children were out of the classroom, uh, you know, children of all ages, of course. The other thing I think that's great about this book is that, you know, alluding to the importance of teaching, whether that be a parent or a person who is in school or you know, maybe homeschooler or something like that. As I understand, this book includes a curriculum guide for parents and teachers. What is that all about? We included some higher level vocabulary words due to the learning loss that happened during the pandemic. And they're just words to learn. And they're in the back of the book. And, you know, you don't have to be a teacher. You know, what's nice about it is, you know, if you're a stay-at-home mom and you're reading, you just can introduce these new higher level of vocabulary to the younger children. Betsy, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us about your latest children's offering. It's illustrated by Ginger Seehafer, and it's called Kate and the Garden Bandits. Betsy, thank you so much. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. You can find out a bit more about Betsy Coffeen on our website, word.kjzz.org. Coming up, we'll talk with another children's author whose middle-grade fantasy novel was a National Book Award finalist this year. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a KJZZ podcast about literature. You have your favorites. Oh, man, my favorite mug. And maybe it's about time to treat yourself to a new favorite. Mugs and t-shirts for you and the family are at shop.kjzz.org. So what are you waiting for? KJZZ Spot 127 Youth Media Center is a qualifying charitable tax organization, which means that your contribution is eligible for a dollar-for-dollar credit on your Arizona taxes. Visit taxcredit.spot127.org today and support our award-winning students. I'm Jay Ellison, producer of The Moth Radio Hour, and I hope you'll join us for our show here on KJZZ. With true personal stories told live without notes to standing room crowds around the world, Moth shows are renowned for the range of human experience they reveal. Moth stories aren't part of the disposable daily information flow. They stick with you. The Moth Radio Hour airs Saturday at 3 on KJZZ. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Newbery Award-winning author Kelly Barnhill suffered a traumatic brain injury in 2021 that seriously affected her ability to write creatively. She described such in a recent New York Times opinion piece, which we've linked to our website. On the heels of her reissued middle-grade children's novel, The Ogress and the Orphans, which was nominated for a National Book Award and is now available in paperback, we caught up with Barnhill. She said the book was the second one she wrote by accident. 
And in fact, it was a book that I began while in recovery from uh, yet another concussion, because I have gotten several of those. And I, I didn't realize that my concussion and the sort of the neural injury that sort of um, uh, followed from that was um, making it difficult to write. I, I didn't I didn't put those two together. I understand that now. And so I thought, well, I won't be a writer anymore. And um, But I did need to have some kind of creative practice. And so I started writing fairy tales to myself every day that I would write by hand and I would read it out loud to my dog, uh, who was an excellent listener. And then I, <laughs> and you know, I was a delayed reader as a kid. Um, and so for me, the um, uh, stories out loud has always been my access my access point to um, any kind of um, creative writing. Um, all of my work is read to, is written to be read out loud, and um, and all of my uh, revisions happen out loud. And I did that for many months, actually. And there was something very sort of soothing about that. It was, you know, sort of like chalk drawings that you know that the rain will take, or um, you know, the um, you know monks in Tibet will make those amazing mandalas um, out of out of sand that they blow into position, and then it all gets swept away. There's something very satisfying about making art that is meant to be uh, transient. And then one day, I I wrote a, a, a fairy tale about um, an ogress and uh, some children in the orphan house and um, and a flock of very excellent crows and a town that had kind of lost its way. And I, I wrote it down and right away it felt very different um, uh, to me. Just even like, it almost felt like even the sound that my pen was making on the paper felt, just seemed to sound different to me. So I left it on my desk. Well, I appreciate you talking to us about the evolution of getting back into writing and I think also the importance of revision and just letting things sit for a little bit and coming back to it and picking it up and persevering. Ultimately, that is sort of the underlying plot, if I may, about this book. It's about many things, of course, dealing with the power of community, being centered yeah. around the town stone in the Glen. A bucolic and pastoral place, but has fallen on some hard times. And without spoiling too much of it, what do you hope briefly are just a couple of takeaways from folks who read this? There's so much sort of pre-writing that has to happen before you can actually nail down the telling of it, right? The structure of the language, the um, the way in which the language will sit on the page, the way it sits in the ear, the way that you engage with it uh, is all very specific to each book. Um, and it takes me a while before I can know how the story is going to be told. And once I can get that, if I can get the sound of it, I can proceed. Well, when I got the sound of the story, when I finally was able to really see where I was and see how I was going to move forward in the story, uh, it was January of 2020. And I was writing about this town in which, you know, everybody became what what used to be this, you know, tight-knit community. Everybody became separate from one another and they shut themselves in their houses and they closed their blinds and they they um uh they they couldn't be near one another. Um and as I was writing that, we were hearing about this virus that was far away in China, and people were worried that maybe it would come here, but probably it won't. You know, huh. and um, and by the time I was really in the thick of the novel was when we were in lockdown. 
And I had already written this. I'd already written, you know, a, um, a, about a town in a different kind of lockdown, um, uh, 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 you know, sort of a lockdown of their sense of themselves, their sense of their neighborliness, their sense of community and what that did to them um, and how they became frightened of one another and mean to each other. And I think what I hope people can take from this is that we do actually have to ask ourselves, what is it that I owe to my neighbor? And the answer to that question for people who just are people of ethics and morals and and responsibility, what you must want for your neighbor is every good thing that you want for yourself, every hopeful thing that you hope for yourself, every loving thing that you love for yourself. You have to want and hope and love those things for your neighbor as well. And I think that that became really important. I live in Minneapolis, and um, uh, we had uh, we had some really tough days, uh, June of 2020. And so, you know, people there were all kinds of you know things on the news all over the place of 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 people in pain and um, and people in rage and of um, uh, buildings burning and um, of uh, of police overreacting and all of these things that happened, but. What didn't make national news were the next days when everybody showed up with their brooms and shovels and helping one another, where people like created these makeshift um, uh, food banks and um, uh, and uh, resource sharing, where um, everybody showed up and helped each other. That doesn't make the news, right? But that is part of the story. And it's an important part of the story. And I think that if we don't tell that part, we miss it. So that's what I'm hoping in this book, that we can sort of see that part. Kelly Barnhill is author of Ogress and the Orphan, a National Book Award finalist. It's out again in paperback this time. Kelly, thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us. Thank you so much for inviting me. I just really appreciate it. You can find out a bit more about Kelly Barnhill on our website, word.kjzz. Coming up, a journalist and historical fiction writer brings us a World War II story about a real-life reporter with an Arizona connection who turned into a mouthpiece for fascism during the war. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a KJZZ podcast about literature. Looking for a new podcast? KJZZ has original podcasts on all sorts of topics, like the new series called Period The End. It's a series about a chapter of life that can be gut-wrenching, exhausting, and confusing. It's about menopause, and half the nation will go through it. You can download great storytelling at podcasts.kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Did you know two out of every three NPR listeners prefer to purchase products and services from public radio sponsors? You can see the benefits of becoming a KJZZ corporate sponsor at sponsor.kjzz.org. With everything from groceries to orthodontics, available on demand, yes, really, why not public radio? Make playing KJZZ part of your smart speaker routine to stay informed on your schedule. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Our final guest is Theodore Wheeler whose latest historical novel, The War Begins in Paris, is a page-turner based on a real-life journalist who lived for a time in Arizona and turned into a mouthpiece for fascism while reporting abroad. It's also a love story with a twist of fate. As a former reporter himself for 14 years, 
Wheeler draws on that background and marries it to the narrative, which is presented mostly in short prose, but peppered with reporting dispatches from Europe. I think most of my writings, so while fictional, it's all topical. So I have two historical novels, uh, but their real events always play a big role in the story of my books. And I think working as a reporter for so long maybe just shaped how I see the world. Specifically with this book, I think my experience is working as, as a political reporter. Uh, so I covered the 2016 and the 2020 election, which were not real high points for journalists. I think it was somewhat of <laughs> to a... To say the least. Right. So I think just going through that um, experience of covering rallies and, and being booed, being called a traitor, being called a liar, and still the sense that I wanted to write a book that showed the value of journalism specifically to democracy which kind of got me rolling into this story, which is set in 1938, uh, follows a group of American foreign correspondents in Paris uh, who are covering, at least in that moment at the start of the book, the Munich Accord, which, you know, basically France and Great Britain gave Czechoslovakia to Nazi Germany if they promised not to invade anyone else, uh, which didn't work out so well. You know, a lot of these reporters like Edward Murrow, like William Shire, like Dorothy Thompson, um, who really established how we cover the news, uh, news journalism, specifically like radio at that time, were just monumental figures. But I think also in establishing like post-war democracy and kind of what I think of as the, the American way of life, they were they're so central to that, that I wanted to write a story that situated humanist reporters in a very central way. One of the main characters, Jane Anderson, is based on a real journalist who turned Nazi mouthpiece in World War II. Who was that real person, and why did you choose to fictionalize this story as opposed to doing, say, a historical biography? I actually learned about Jane first, so this was about nine years ago when I came across the story of Jane Anderson through an article written by William Shire, actually, about the radio traders, a group of American journalists who worked for Goebbels during the war. A lot of is known about her early life, where she, during World War One, she was a reporter, uh, did a lot of adventuring kind of journalism, like she was the first woman to fly in an airplane over London, uh, was the first journalist to ride in a submarine, reported from the trenches. She tried to seduce Joseph Conrad and made claims to being the most beautiful woman in the world. Oh, wow. uh, kind of a lot of this ridiculous stuff, or just, you know, a huge character. But after that time, her, her star kind of fell quickly. So there's huge gaps in her life until she kind of reemerged on the radio for the Nazis during World War II. So I think that's where my urge as a, as a fiction writer always sees stories like that and wants to tell them where it's a, you know, a larger than life character, a really interesting part of our history, but one that has a ton of gaps. So as a fiction writer, that's what I'm always looking for is just like these interesting things. But where can I write fiction to fill in those gaps sure. and to try to understand the, the story in a way? If I were just writing straight nonfiction, it couldn't really be done just because the historical record doesn't have enough information. The other main character, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, it's Miel? Yep, that's right. Just like uh, the French word for honey, basically. We know very little about her at the outset as it's framed in the prologue, and they're obviously very different people. Yeah, so he came to Miel mostly just wanting someone who uh, was kind of the opposite of Jane in many ways. So she's younger, she's unknown, um, she's not a brash character at all, kind of the opposite, um, where she's shy and struggling to find her way in the world, um, where she was raised Mennonite uh, in Iowa, 
Um, so kind of, again, you know, this simple beginnings. But it was really important to have that. I think, you know, having Jane Anderson, it was someone I could research and had as a partially formed character at the start. But I didn't really want to write a novel that focused on someone who was a fascist and worked for the Nazis. Like I didn't want to be inside of her head for the two years it took to write this book, uh, more or less. So that's where Miel comes in as kind of the counterbalance to Jane, but also two people that are pretty compatible, right? Because they are complementary in their ways. And what's really interesting is that the two of these characters fall in love, Jane and Miel, and you said they're complementary and often opposites attract, but, and I don't want to spoil too much of the book, but it turns from a love story into something much different as the book progresses. Yeah. I think that, I mean, a lot of that idea is of having such a, a deep relationship between these two characters and connecting them as closely as possible. But the main turning point in the first part of the novel occurs on uh, Kristallnacht. Just kind of that moment where those lines became very clear, where most people wouldn't be associated with someone like Jane Anderson anymore, just because they didn't want to be on the wrong side of what was happening in the world then. But it's a, it's a real struggle for Miel because she is so close to Jane. She hasn't had, you know, even close friendships like she has with Jane in her life before. So it's not so easy for her to write off Jane as a friend or more just because she doesn't have anyone else in her life to kind of fill that role. Paris, of course, was much more progressive, but having two women falling in love, particularly two Americans, that would have been noticed by the reporting corps, correct? Somewhat. I mean, in a lot of the research I did, it seemed like there may have been more relationships like this that just weren't really public or people didn't talk about. I think especially for reporters who worked in Berlin in the 20s and 30s in Weimar, Berlin, it really wasn't all that uncommon to have homosexual relationships or attractions or dalliances. Of course, that all changed 180 when the Nazis took power. That was some of the thinking too, just that starting off in a world that is kind of libertine and free and open. But then as the war gets closer and that reality sets in, you know, everything becomes kind of more binary, I guess, or, you know, where you have one of two choices and, you know, people are set against each other in almost anything in that kind of situation. Theodore Wheeler is author of The War Begins in Paris. It's a novel, and it's a great and suspenseful examination of the relentlessness of propaganda in World War II and a love story that turns out quite differently. Thanks so much for coming to Word. I appreciate it. Oh, sure thing. Thanks for having me. You can find out a bit more about Theodore Wheeler on our website. We're back with the final episode of Word for this season on December 26th. In the meantime... Don't forget to enter our Tiny Library Book Giveaway, which is open online until December 22nd at noon. There's both a kids and adults category, and you can find the entry link at word.kjzz.org. Find our shows on multiple platforms, including the NPR pod feed and now YouTube. I'm Tom Maxidon, and thanks so much for listening to Word. Word. Word? Word. What's the word? Thanks for listening to Word, a KJZZ podcast about literature. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts.